This is the Line 4 Podcast. I'm Will Bardwell. The author Toni Morrison once wrote, If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. That's good advice, albeit perhaps a bit too encouraging. There are a lot of bad golf books out there. Then again, writing is hard. A 3,000-word long-form story is tough to put together. Anyone who takes on the challenge of putting together 100,000 words for a book and then actually pulls it off deserves a modicum of respect, no matter what the finished product looks like. But it's not just the enormity of the task that makes writing a book such a daunting prospect. The process itself is ambiguous. How do you know if a topic is something that justifies the time and expense of writing a book, or is just some niche subject that you think is neat? How the hell do you even begin? Well, I don't know. So I asked. Today on the Line 4 podcast, we're going to try to figure out how to write a book by talking to three of my favorite golf writers. Tom Coyne, whose fifth book, A Course Called America, was released in May. Jim Hartzell, a first-time author who recently finished a book about Sweeten's Cove Golf Club called The Secret Home of Golf. And Shane Ryan, who wrote a New York Times bestseller called Slay the Tiger, which is about the 2014 PGA Tour season and is one of my favorite golf books ever. Let's start with Tom Coyne, who by now has got to be one of the most widely read golf writers alive. His first two novels, A Gentleman's Game and Paper Tiger, were followed by three nonfiction travel books, A Course Called Ireland, A Course Called Scotland, and this year's A Course Called America. Tom also does a ton of writing for The Golfer's Journal and hosts that magazine's podcast. I guess to, to jump right in, I mean, I think it's funny is the wrong word, but it's it's something that um, just the way COVID landed with the schedule you were keeping, I mean, it wasn't, yeah. you know, COVID wasn't convenient for anybody, but at least as I appreciated it, you, your travels were sort of wrapping up right as things got bad. And so right as they were telling everybody, okay, go, go to your houses for a few months and we'll tell you when you can come out, uh, you were kind of getting to the point where you were going to need to hunker down and start writing anyway. Uh, is that right? Yeah, I wrapped things up um, right before Christmas. You know, COVID stuff starts February, March, I guess. And um, and that was exactly when I needed to be locked down. Uh, where, and I would have been locked down anyway, but not to the extreme that we all were. Um, so it was, yeah, it was wild. When I think about it, you know, this is the longest of the, you know, of any of my books and a course called America is. And um, the first draft came out the most quickly. Um, really? Because, yeah, yeah. And I think, well, one, because I jumped into it. Um, that's probably for a few reasons. I, I jumped into it the most quickly. Like I think with the other books, I let them kind of simmer and, um, you know, did travel and was like, all right, let, let me kind of like, think about this and what's the story and and it needs to marinate a little more and but i was ready to go jay first the book um you know so two weeks then i I was into it um and i'm not sure why that was part of it maybe because i knew i wanted to deliver the first draft uh by i wanted to deliver the first draft in may so that the book could come out the next may um, because in publishing, it's roughly a year turnaround. I mean, it can be different for everybody at every house, but for the way that I've like, the way that's worked for me, uh, has been, you know, delivering the first draft a year before it comes out, uh, because that gives you, you know, roughly six months. The editing process is very extensive. And so, you know, that gives you a long, a good amount of time to do that, but have the, the galleys and plenty of time and have the time to do the marketing correctly and do all that stuff correctly rather than sort of rush it and the books show up and, and nobody know where, where it came from. And I mean, it's certainly different if, if it's a celebrity book or it's a timely book. I mean, publishing houses can crash a book in, you know, in a week if they have to, but you know, for me, I knew I wanted to hit like May. So that gave me like a pretty tight timeline. 
I didn't want to wait. Um, like with the Ireland and Scotland books, it was a two-year lag between the trip. And then when the book came out or when I finished the book, and I didn't want to do that again because I was actually getting, you know, I was getting texts and emails and DMs from people who were like, can I get the book for Christmas? And I just gotten home and I'm like, dude, it's not how it works. You know, like I, I've got to like, like next Christmas, maybe. Um, and not that, not even next Christmas, you know, like it, it, it takes some time. So I found myself explaining the publishing process to, to, to people along the way who were, so there was like, I'd done all this, I guess you'd call it a sort of marketing for the book. I do the, doing the travel itself. And I didn't want to wait too long before people forgot that, oh, yeah, that dude was here, you know. Um, so I got into it really quickly. And, and yes, with COVID, getting back to your question, um, I was forced to be here. Um, and there was a lot. There were fewer distractions. There was one big distraction and that I had to become an educator for my children. Um, other than that. <laughs> other than that. Uh, which, you know, once we got used to that was, was fine. Um, and incredibly, um, uneducational for them. Uh, they learned, no, they learned nothing other than how to turn the computer on. They're good at logging onto things now. That's all they learned that year. Um, so, but other than that, you know, I was, you know, I had the evenings and early mornings and all that. I had a lot of time and it was good. You mentioned, um, <clears throat> Twitter and Instagram kind of becoming de facto publicity uh, for the mm -hmm. book as you were doing your travels. Um, was that intentional or is that just kind of the way it came together? I mean, the social media stuff worked on a few levels. It, it, was, it was definitely useful just during the trip, like in terms of getting people, getting to meet people and collecting suggestions for places to go. Like it became a sort of a little bit the course called America thing became a little bit of a community where if I said, Hey, I'm going to, I've got like 14 times at such and such tomorrow who wants to come, you know, I get 20 people to show up and that's great. And that's the story. And that, that those are the characters. And that was exactly what I needed. And um, so social media was incredibly important in that sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also, yeah, I mean, I'm deliberately, getting the word out about the book well before it's written you know it's a, it's a way to sort of spread the word of like okay this is what the next project is um you're not gonna be able to buy it for a little while but uh if you're enjoying this you know these posts etc you know it's building it's going to be something hashtag of course called america whatever you know i mean you just have to you have to you don't have to but it certainly helps i think to have that you know, that awareness and that willingness to do that kind of stuff. Um, I think you have to do it the right way. I, I don't think you want it to feel um, overly sort of packaged or forced down people's throats, but um, it's just, it's a great way to communicate with, with people who are going to read the book. And, um, and it's awesome too, then that they can reach out to you, tell you what they think. Um, when they read the book and hopefully they say nice things and you can respond to them. And um, it's a whole different, like, you know, I've been doing this for a little while. I mean, a, gen a gentleman's game came out in 2001. So yeah, 20 years. And there was a time like I, no one ever reached out to you, you know, like, and I would never reach out to an author. It would just feel weird. Um, if I, if I liked their book or didn't like their book or whatever. And, uh, and it's awesome now, like there's all this interaction with, with, with readers. And um, I suppose that has something to do with the fact that I'm doing nonfiction. I'm in the story and there are people in the story who I just know from Twitter, you know, so they're actually in the book and their pictures. If you open up the middle of the book, there's a spread of just selfies with me, with all the people that join me. So there are a lot of people that are just in this story. Um, but other than that, you know, it's cool to, you know, I hear from, Someone who's like, hey, I enjoyed that. Da, da, da. And that, that, that's wonderful. That's, that's um, definitely keeps you going, you know, and uh, lets you feel like you're on, the right, you're on the right track. So what are your days like when you're in the thick of actually writing the book? 
Um, they're awesome for me. They're incredibly annoying for uh, poor Allison, who, when it's like people read the book and they're like, or, you know, I go to speaking events and the first question is always like, are you still married? How do I meet a person like your wife? Does she have a sister? Like all that stuff. Um, you know, in that she tolerates, you know, my travels and all the golf and these adventures. Um, and I totally get where those questions are coming from. And she is the greatest, no doubt. Um, but the part that they don't see that really sucks, I think, is that when I sort of get into um, lockdown sort of writing mode, um, I'm not, uh, it's, I'm here, but it's worse <laughs> than if I was away because it's, you know, just, uh, I'm not accessible, but I'm here. So, and what I mean by that is like, you know, first thing I write, like, like to write early. So rather than always being available to like do that morning routine, I try to, um, but if I'm really on something, I need to like the first thing to happen that happens in the day is for me to be at the keyboard um, before any other sort of thoughts or distractions kind of get in my way or get in my head rather. Um, so yeah, I, I go right. And then the problem is, you know, I'll look up and it's noon and I'll be like, oh, geez, like how did the kids get to school? I mean, I can sort of get lost in it well, a lot. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's um, and if someone comes into the room, like I have my office kind of in a separated part of the house. And um, if uh, like like nobody would would come in here while I'm working and not I don't like freak out, but it's just I'm just kind of left alone, which is amazing that, that I'm, I can do that. So, um, yeah, so my days are straight to the computer like don't. I don't, it's kind of my, my the best hygiene, I suppose. I don't shower or coffee or any of that. I um, I have a fridge full of seltzer next to my desk, and um, I sit here and start working. And usually around like noon or one or two, I sort of run out of steam. Where um, then I can start answering email and do all the other stuff that you have to do, um, or do some interviews or do whatever, check in, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have some every day, you know, I'll typically have something to check in with at the golfer's journal, um, jump on a, a meeting, do a podcast, whatever. Like that's like the, the like busy work I'm, I can do in the afternoon. That's good. Like my head's um, not sort of fresh enough to like invent new sentences, but it's fine for answering emails. And um and then I'm around in the afternoon for the kids and stuff. So, and, and then if I'm really cooking, like I, I do like to write in the evening as well. So like, I like to write late and I like to write early. Things are quiet and um, generally not too much going on. Is there a difference between your approach to like when you're writing a book, like a course called America or a story for the golfer's journal is, you know, is, are the, yeah, processes for that different, or is it more or less the same thing? You just, you know, writing early. It's a little different. I mean, it's a little different because there'll be there'll be interviews, there'll be the collection of material, um, getting the transcriptions done, da da da. And once I have all that, then um, I'll start sort of peck, you know, just pecking away at a structure and a lead and stuff like that. But then once I have that, and that's the kind of work that I don't have to do like first thing and you know whatever. But once I have that, if I you know say it's a two thousand three thousand word story, um, the first draft's probably going to come out in one day. Um, it's just generally how, it, and it's not going to be done by any means. But I'm going to have like a shape and a structure of it, and that's cool. That's why I love. I mean, I really do enjoy the feature writing. Um, writing a book is a different, is a different thing. It's, it's a, it's a, it's your, I don't know. It's just, it's all you're doing for whatever, six months, a year. So it's in your head constantly. And this question of why aren't you working on me? Um, what, what, you know, um, you still have to do this part. You still have to do that. Um, and it's, 
it just sort of, and it starts to grow and you're not sure how it's growing, but it is growing. And, um, and you were terrified that you didn't know how to do this anymore, but suddenly it's happening and, and the stakes are completely different. So the anxiety is different. Um, and so there's really just something nice about doing, you know, the features um, in the golfer's journal because uh you know it's a you know say like i spend like a month with a story um and i can really obsess over that and you can really fine-tune stuff you know and and really you know with 2500 words you can really consider every single one of them you know with 130,000 words you know you're gonna spell golf t t e a which is on fortunately something that slipped through into the final draft of, of the book with so much copy editing and proofreading there's still a typo in the first edition but hey that's fun for people who got the first edition um yeah so there's you know so it's a different editing process and a whole different thing so um yeah it is different uh, is it easier than it used to be you mentioned that you've been doing this for 20 years now i mean the the thought of putting 130,000 words together is just so intimidating to me. Is it easier for you than it was 20 years ago? Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably re reflected in this, the time with which I was, we were able to get this one out. Um, and then I think it's pro I'm, you know, you always, yeah, but there's a recency bias, but I think this is the best of the, of, of any of them, um, in my opinion. And I'm, I'm not saying that it, that makes it great. I'm just saying if I had to rank them in terms of um, uh, which which I prefer, um, you love them all, but I love this one. Whatever, it's that's it's hard to talk about your own books. Um, so the um, I, I think it, it's getting easier in terms of I'm more comfortable with. The, the editing process is smoother because you get more comfortable with that, right? Um, the, you know what to expect, you know um, how to maneuver that sort of situation and circumstance um, a lot better. I'd say like the first time getting like thoroughly copy edited, copy edited and like looking at all those notes and being like, oh my God, it's almost like writing the book again. Like you have, on every page, there's something to consider and wonder about and think, should this, should this sentence be different? Should this comma go here? Should this, should we rework this? And you could spend um, forever <laughs> on that. And I have, um, I think I've gotten a lot better with taking, um, with trusting my editors and uh, also getting better, like, like knowing like, okay, no, this is how I want it. And when it comes to this stuff, no, they're absolutely right. You know? So that process goes a lot more quickly. Um, the writing itself, I, I, I don't know if that gets any actual writing. I don't, I don't know if that gets easier because there's still with all, all the books, there's that anxiety when you sit down, um, because it's still something, even if you write quickly, it's still something if you're lucky that you're doing every three or four years. And there's this feeling of like, do I remember how to do this? Like, can I do this? Um, I don't know if maybe I just got lucky, you know, last time, maybe I won't finish this one. You know what I mean? Like there's, so since it's just not, not something, you know, if I do this 10, 15 times in my lifetime, that would be amazing. Uh, 10 even if I double, you know, so we're at five, right? So if I get to 10 books, that's still something I'll only have done 10 times in my life. So it's still that question of like, um, am I any good at this? Like that, that voice is which that, that, that insecurity that in some way that nags, but also I think drives at least me, um, will be, will be there. So now the, the writing, getting the words down, I think is always has the, brings the similar challenges. I've just gotten a lot better at doing all the stuff that comes after. Um, I think for me is, is, has gotten easier. Um, you know, we've gotten better at marketing the books. We've gotten better at editing the books. Um, 
and most of that but i mean getting better most of it is like i trust um i really trust the, the people i work with at simon and schuster avid reader press they're, they're awesome well i was going to ask you what's next anyway before that just because i i mean you write five books and somebody's going to always assume well that there's got to be a sixth coming out now uh he's Hmm. He's in for a penny, he's in for a pound. Um, but what what is next for you? Do you have any ideas? It's the quite big question for me, like that I'm thinking about, spending all my time thinking about. And we have some stuff on the uh, some stuff on the whiteboard, if you will. I don't actually have a whiteboard, but I know that people use those um, for ideas and things. So yeah, there's some ideas. Um, I got into this as a fiction writer and I think it might be time to brush off the old fiction writing pens and pencils and um, give that a shot. Uh, that's, that's something that I'm right now probably most interested in. And in terms, of, I think the travel books, I think this is a nice trilogy, um, Scotland, America, Ireland, and, you know, feel pretty good about that. I hit in the book about Australia and that, if I was going to do travel again, I mean, that's sort of the, you know, Australia, New Zealand is um, the corner of the world that I'm most interested in going back and going to visit and, and doing something with. But um, I think we're good on the travel front. I think Allison's put up with enough. Um, there are some people I want to write about as well um, in golf and some stuff that I'd like to do in the fiction realm. So um, stay tuned, more coming. Yeah. Is fiction easier, harder, the same, but different? Like, how does it compare writing with nonfiction? <laughs> it's been a while and you know what, I'm going to find out again. I, I, there's, I mean, there is something I turned to nonfiction after doing gentleman's game because I felt like I think everything I knew about the world, people was in some way and everything I had to say about it was in some way in the in the novel right I was 24 years old when I wrote it the hell do I know I can't believe I wrote a novel at 24 that's so pretentious because <laughs> um, you don't know shit right um, but I knew enough about caddying and all that in golf I guess to to get a book out um, and so turn it on fiction because it's like okay I'll go create the experiences and go find life and sort of do something worth writing about you know and, and that's been great. And nonfiction is great from a writer's point of view because you can write book proposals and sell book proposals, um, which can be, you know, 15 pages long. Um, and that's, it's nicer to, to write 15 pages and get a yes or no versus writing a 350-page novel, <laughs> spending five years on it, and then getting a no. Um, so from a writer's point of view, uh, there's something very practically uh, practical and logistically nice about nonfiction. Um, but you know what? I, I want to make shit up. Like I want, I want to be able to say like, this is how things went. This is the problem that we encountered. This is the getting back to that joy uh, that I had writing short stories and the first book and being, and, and, I was in a, I came out of a fiction writing program in graduate school and, and the sort of fun that you had when um, characters and things started to happen um, and go in directions that maybe you didn't expect or surprised you or that you felt really excited about, or you couldn't get back, wait to get back to write because you didn't know where the story was going to go. When you're writing nonfiction, you, pretty good idea where it's going to go unless you're making unless you're being way too liberal with the creative side of creative nonfiction. so um yeah it'd be nice to be able to sit in my desk and say this is what happened rather than have to um you know this is what happened on the alaskan frontier rather than actually have to go golf along the alaskan frontier myself um yeah it'd be quite it'd be quite handy so i'm looking i'm looking forward to getting back to it i don't think it's easier though that then there's all sorts of challenges of imaginative challenges of actually going um you know how sharp are your knives when it comes to um being able to in invent people and worlds and all that 
A quick word. If you haven't checked out A Course Called America yet, or if you've already finished it and are ready for Tom's next run at fiction, then you need to get in on the summer's hottest trend, getting vaccinated. All the kids are doing it, at least the kids who are 12 and over. In my home state of Mississippi, and I'm serious about this, in the past month, more than 145,000 people have gotten their first dose of the vaccine. That's more than double the number of first doses from a month earlier. I'm serious about that. That's great. Down the road in Louisiana, it's even more popular. Vaccinations are up 130% over the past month. And that's just in one month. And God knows the people in Louisiana know how to have a good time. And look, I mean, let's be honest here. The people who are getting their first doses of the vaccine right now, they waited. They didn't ask to be the first ones. They waited and watched to make sure everything went okay with the rollout. And we know now that things are going okay. The vaccine is safe. It is the single best thing that you can do to protect your family and loved ones. So get in on the craze. Go get vaccinated. And let's start drinking that post-round beer indoors again real soon. Now, back to the podcast and something that's a lot more intimidating than getting a shot. Not just writing a book, but writing your first book. We've all stumbled across a story or a subject at some point and thought, oh man, I could write a whole book about that. But actually, writing a book takes more than a great subject. It takes a whole hell of a lot of passion. And for Jim Hartzell, Sweetens Cove Golf Club in Tennessee inspired that level of passion. The end result is a new book called The Secret Home of Golf, which is available for pre-order right now at back9press.com. That's back, the number nine, press.com. The idea of writing a book seems so intimidating to me, even as a person who has done a lot of writing before. Had, had you toyed around with the idea of writing a book before, or was Secret Home of Golf the first time you dipped your toes in that pool? Well, I mean, I thought about it for a long time, and I had had ideas over the years and I just never committed to doing it because it is kind of very intimidating when you think about what you've got to do to put something together like that. So even though I, I guess, you know, since I've got out of college, I'd had, had these great ideas several times and I'd, I might've even started doing outlines. I did do a couple of outlines of stuff and I just, uh, just never followed through with it. Cause I was, I wound up having kids and was very busy and I'm at a now at a place in my life where I, you know, the, I've got a little bit more time to myself, which really helped me be able to do it, to be quite honest. Well, it, what was it then about the topic you landed on Sweetens Cove that kind of pushed you farther along than maybe other topics that you had played with before? Well, I just think, knowing some of the story from you know becoming friends with rob and having found the place and kind of gotten obsessed with it like a lot of people going up there every two times a week and um you know just really there's just something about it that's just very interesting i mean just where it is and why it's there and how it's even there in this kind of location and um just and you know then i heard rob I went to that first ringer event that they had at Sweetens Cove, which I talk about in the book a good bit. Um, and Rob gave this speech at the end of it, at the very end, after all the prizes and stuff were given out. And he just, he could, he was really had tears and he, it was just kind of emotional. And I just remember thinking when I was going home the next day, you know, I'm, I, I want to write a book about this. It's got, there's got to be a something, a story here. And, so that was kind of when I first started thinking about it, which was almost close to three years ago now. I mean, you're obviously Sweetens Cove is a place that people have written about before, but I, I'm not aware of anybody having tackled it through the medium of a book like you have. What was it that jumped out at you about this 
and said, this is, this is an opportunity to write a book, not merely, you know, long form magazine article or something like that. Well, I just think knowing what some of what Rob had gone through for this place to make it, um, and just the unique nature of the, the course. I mean, I've, I've played a good bit of golf in my life and, um, that's an understatement. I, yeah. And I've just, I've never, I had never been anywhere in the U S like Sweetness Cove. Now there may be, I'm sure there's a couple places out there that I've never been, but, um, it just kind of got me interested in actually playing golf again. Um, and having fun playing golf, which I think is something that has been missing a lot, you know, in, in United States golf for, for a while. And, uh, I just think Sweetens is kind of at the forefront of trying to bring that back. And I, whether, I don't even think it was necessarily intentionally, uh, you know, how it developed, but it just developed that way. Uh, and just, you know, just the unique nature of, of the people I've met out there and, um, you know, the, the setting and just Rob's story and Tad's story. I just thought, you know, this is, you know, this is a story that could be told. And I did a, you know, I did an outline of, of you know, I, I did, I, I called Rob and asked him a few days after that ringer, if he wanted, if I could do it. And he immediately agreed. And, um, I said, I've never done this before, you know, but I'm, I'm going to do an outline and then I'll come meet with you. And you know, I did two or three outlines before I thought I had something that, you know, was coherent and, um, you know, something I could follow. Uh, but yeah, that was, until I got that right, I was not a hundred percent sure I could do it. But I, after I had that, I thought, you know, there's, there's a story to be told here. Well, th that's a great way of transitioning to another question I wanted to ask. Like, what, what is the process like for this? I mean, when I'm writing a, a long form article, I mean, they always tell you to start with an outline, but I, I frequently find myself guilty of just jumping in and just starting to write and kind of going with that until I can't write anymore and seeing where I am at that point. And sometimes I do have to go you know, outline and, and put a little structure behind it. And sometimes I'm far enough along that I think I can, uh, I can sort of freehand it until I get to the end. Um, but when you're talking about something that's uh, as long as, as what you've written versus something like a, a 3000 word article. I, I imagine that freewheeling style really wouldn't be very productive. So what well, you, you said, you started with a, an outline. Where did, where do you go from there? Well, it's interesting. Um, after I had the outline and I just remembered this, but um, I actually wrote the prologue and the ending before anything else, I, just, I, wrote, I wrote them straight out, like within two weeks. And when I had this outline and I, the prologue um, hasn't changed much in the two and a half years since I've, since I started this. Um, now the ending wound up, I, we wound up adding another epilogue, but I, I wound up using a lot of that in, in the last chapter. Um, so that, I don't know if anybody, <laughs> That, it just kind of happened that way. I, 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 saw, I, I sort of saw how I wanted to start and end, and then it was filling in everything in between. And then I tried to sort of um, break it down I had from my outline, kind of how I wanted the chapters to work. And then I started thinking, okay, who do I need to interview for all these chapters? And I had a long list of you know, I can't even remember. And I probably inter interviewed 50 people for this book. Um, and I just, you know, I, I started methodically after I had those first two things written, I just started methodically interviewing people. Now I, I really spent, I don't know how long interviewing Rob first. Uh, we had three or four very long sessions together uh, up in Chattanooga. And then I just started working my way through. And I would, I don't know how everybody does it. I mean, I guess everybody's a little bit different, but at some point where I'd have a, a lot of information for a chapter, I'd write a chapter um, and then I'd need to interview more people. So it might be, you know, it might be six weeks before I wrote another chapter. Um, 
and but then there'd be some times where I'd I'd have enough information and I might write two in a row. Um, so it was just kind of it was probably a bit nonlinear for me just from trying to talk to all the people I needed to and um, kind of get the information I needed to kind of to write this thing. What was the hardest part? Um, I think the hardest part is trying to maintain a coherent thread throughout the, the narrative of the book. Um, you know, you just, you, you almost have to have that in the back of your mind um, when you're writing and almost like it's on the desktop of your, your brain or something that, you know, this has to be coherent. There's a, there has to be, there needs to be a thread to this story. Um, and I think I was able to do that, but that was not easy. I mean, I, you know, you look at some of these books people have written and um, it's just amazing that I know a lot of authors that I read have talked, talked about that they struggle when something gets so complicated, they struggle, they struggle to keep the narrative going or to remember something that they said, you know, eight chapters before and not contradict it or not repeat it. Um, so, that, you know, I, I think that was one of the hardest things. And then, you know, just finding the, getting some people for interviews was, was hard. I mean, Rob helped me quite frankly on some of them. It, without him, I probably couldn't have, it'd have been hard for me to talk to some of the people and he was great to, to intervene on my behalf. And, and so I got to talk to just about, I think I talked to everybody I wanted to, except maybe one person. And so it was, you know, that, that was hard, but it was, it was, it needed to be done. You know, the, thinking again about the difference between writing a full length book versus, uh, you know, like a 3000 word article in the golfer's journal or something like that. One of the things that i I find myself not having to struggle with too much is finding a voice in it because, you know, 3000 words at the end of the day is really not that much. And so if you can find a voice at the outset, it's not that hard to maintain it over the span of, you know, a 15 minute read or however long it takes somebody to read 3000 words. But when you're talking about something as big as the secret home of golf, you know, it's like when, in journalism school, they teach you to write inverted pyramid, right? Like the most important facts at the beginning and the second most important facts after that, and write very mechanically. Uh, and golf writing really defies that. Um, yeah. And especially I, when you're like trying to write about something as special as Sweeten's Cove, you, you're gonna it just cries out for something a little more artistic and you know, it, it would be difficult for me to maintain the same voice throughout a book that long. Was that a challenge or am I overthinking it? Well, no, it's a good point, but you know, fortunately that's what I feel like my writing style is more <laughs> leans that way. Anyway. I mean, I had um, the best well, writing professor, more like to the point or more artistic or what do you mean? More to the artistic side of it. Okay. And, uh, and I, I had a writing professor at Mississippi State that um, was brilliant. And our entire class was uh, reading um, these three Evelyn Wall books, uh, this English writer, and, and just writing essays about it. I mean, that was the entire class. And it was, uh, you know, it was not... I come at it more from the creative side of it, I guess. My favorite writers are Bernard Darwin and, you know, James Finnegan that wrote about Scotland a lot, um, a guy from Philadelphia um, that write with that. And I'm not saying, I'm not comparing myself to them by any means. I'm just saying that that style of, of writing is something that I enjoy and read a lot and honestly has influenced me you know, over the years, I mean, I've been, I've been collecting golf books since I was 10 years old. I mean, I've got the first book I ever bought still. So, you know, that, that's what kind of how I approached it. And, 
but you're right. I mean, it's, you got to try to, I try not to think about it too much. I just tried to write the way I normally do. Um, and the editor was very, you know, whenever he would make some suggestions, he would say, you know, make sure that this is in your voice. And, um, so it is a concern, but I just I just felt like it came naturally to me to since I write that way. And I, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. I, I took a lot of writing classes when I was in college and I've done <laughs> to your credit. Yeah. I've, well, we didn't have many um, electives in architecture school, but the ones that I got, I, I was able to get some really good. There's some really good professors that you know people had recommended. And um, and then I've done in my business, I've just by default done. In, in, in any business, you know, even in yours, I'm sure, uh, well, I know there, there's a ton of writing that has to be done. And there's usually somebody in the office that um, people go to <laughs> when something has to be written, like a proposal or a letter or just a something, you know, and I, I just by default have done that wherever I've worked. And um, so I just, and even, you know, even when you're writing, um, you know, that, something that's a bit more technical, you can have kind of an artistic lean to it um you know so I, that's kind of the way i look at it i mean i but you know i i hope that i was able to keep that that type of voice throughout i feel like i was but um you know it's not it's you know if you think about it too much it might it might make it harder actually <laughs> well this may be a stupid question but i mean how hard is it is it, was it as hard and, and it's intimidating as it must have been on the front end or, you know, by the time you got done with it, did it seem manageable or, or by the time you got done with it, did you say, Jesus, I have no idea how I finished it? Well, I was uh, finished with the rough draft and I had something pretty bad happen and I just, um, I had already been talking to this publisher and you know i'm like how am i going to finish this thing i just there's just no way and i knew it needed to be edited um um and i just felt like you know i've worked on this thing for two years or over two years it's taken me weekends and going up to chattanooga and going everywhere to talk to people and um you know i just i've got to do it and so that it's you know at first that was intimidating quite honestly and I, I did think you know how am i gonna how am i gonna actually finish this thing i've got this rough draft i think it's pretty good but i mean i know it i know that somebody needs to read it and um you know fortunately i had somebody helping me that just has the same sort of view of golf and golf riding that i do and he was he was just a very good editor now i'm not gonna say it was easy for us to finish because it, it took a lot of time. Um, but it just, it wasn't, once I got into it and I, and I thought, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. He's going to be able to guide me through, you know, finishing this thing and everything else that's got to go with it. I kind of, it kind of relaxed me some and, um, you know, I was able to, we were able to get it done and, um, you know, it, it was, it was hard, but it was after those first few days, it wasn't too bad. Well, do you think you have any more books in you after this, or, uh, or was yes. you know, as I was going to say, as Lyle Lovett said, uh, it was was once enough. No, I'm going to do another one. Um, I'm going to write, write one. On, I'm going to write one about Scotland um, that I'm hoping to weave in the story of my son uh, Jordan that unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago, and. Um, I think there's something to tell there. He was a, a brilliant golfer and uh, it just, um, we were going to take this trip and we're not going to now. And um, I'm going to go by myself and um, I really want to, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to tie it all together, but I've got some ideas. I'm going to take Jordan's uh, putter that he, his Scotty Cameron that he used for, you know, since he was a, in eighth grade. And um, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go, Will, but I'm, I've, I've, I'm, that's the idea. I mean, you, you've, you and I have talked some over the last few years. And, 
you know, I've kind of written a good bit about Scotland and some other, other places. And, um, but I, I kind of want to just, I'm taking this trip. If all holds together, I hope, um, you know, going to some places I've never been that I always wanted to go kind of really off the beaten path and, um, trying to work in a little bit about, you know, what's happened and, you know, it's sort of my way of, I've had this vacation saved up and, you know, I've been, it's been hard the last couple of months, but I, I just, I feel like it's something that'll maybe help me um, kind of get, get through it a little bit, but that's kind of the idea and without getting too heavy on you, but that um, I've, I've written, I feel like some good, some good things about uh, places over there. And I, um, so I'm going to try to just kind of let it happen and see what happens. Kind of like, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite, maybe my favorite book of all time is, um, to links land, um, by Michael Bamberger, which I've probably given away a hundred times over the years to people. And, you know, that story from, from what I can tell now, maybe, maybe he would say differently. It just sort of developed from him going over and taking this trip and well, it started out caddying and but then it just sort of developed into the story and so i'm going to kind of i've got kind of a very very rough outline in my head but i'm gonna i've got a quarantine for 10 days when i get there so oh that's too I'm bad gonna, man well i know just but hang out I, in scotland well <laughs> i know but I, you know it's i've got a good friend that's going to let me stay with him or otherwise i couldn't do it um I, who could afford mm. to waste 10 days on a trip but um you know he's gonna let me stay he's got a nice he lives by himself and you know i'll be pretty much by myself i've got his back back garden and um so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to work on the just the rough idea during that time and and do some work for my other my real job as well but um you know so I, if i get um once i get out of that i've got this itinerary and hopefully a story will develop from that I, you know the publisher I'm working with is interested in it and uh, you know we'll see I, I, and hopefully it won't take me two and a half years but um, we'll just see how it goes. Now there's nothing easy about doing what Tom Coyne and Jim Hartzell did going out finding a story and committing months and months reporting and actually writing it out but if you were determined to find something about their projects that wasn't overbearing and hellacious, it might be that the stories they wrote were timeless. Other than whatever deadlines they and their publishers agreed to, the stories they wrote could have been written any time. Shane Ryan's next project is another kettle of fish. Shane's 2015 book, Slaying the Tiger, which is about the 2014 season on the PGA Tour, is hands down one of the best books about pro golf ever written. But in addition to being extraordinarily well-written, Slain the Tiger was also timely. It told the story of a dramatic year on tour and was available just a few months after that year ended. It would have had a lot less punch if it had come out a year or two later. Shane's next project is even more time-intensive. He's preparing to write about the 2021 Ryder Cup, which will take place at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin in late September. Nearly seven years since writing Slaying the Tiger, jumping back into the book writing game with such a difficult challenge is definitely one way to do it. Uh, the first thing I wanted to, to ask, maybe a, less a question about writing a book than more just like for my own personal edification, but I, uh, why did it uh, take so long to land on another book project after Slaying the Tiger? That's a good question. Yeah, it was, um, I, I guess there were a couple things I wanted to do in the meantime. The one that we actually wrote a proposal for was that I wanted to do a, a book about the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. And so that was the one where really I was kind of geared up and I was like, I could do this, I could travel and, and feel really good about it. Um, but nobody was interested in, in that book for me, which is understandable because I didn't have a huge experience writing political books. There was no reason to think that I could go out there and do, I think, I, you know, of course, I think I could have done a good job, but uh, there was no reason for a publisher to to kind of take a gamble on that and and pay enough money that would, you know, let me allow me to go travel and things like that. So that was one idea. I was ready to kind of jump right back in the saddle. And then the funny thing is, when that didn't work out, it was just like, well, 
I don't know. I don't know if I want to write another golf book. I, I wasn't super enthused about it because writing Slaying the Tiger, I mean, I, I traveled, I think, you know, 35 weeks, I think that year uh, with the PGA Tour or to the majors or, or anything, you know, I, I was constantly gone. And I have kids now and I, I didn't have kids then. So it was doable, but it was still hard to be uh, away from home for so long. And so, you know, I was really proud of that book and very happy. And it was the kind of thing I was young enough and energetic enough to do at the time. But I think probably there was some mental thing where even though that doesn't have to be the experience of writing a book, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to leave home for a year to write a book. Uh, it was the kind of thing where I just maybe wasn't super eager to, to repeat the process. And you know, as you said, I'm writing this Ryder Cup book now, and that entails some travel. I'm, I'm going to be gone for most of the next month from home, but, uh, you know, it's just a month. It's not it's not a year constantly being on the road. So anyway, maybe there was like a almost a mental block to doing that. I did write a couple just fiction books for myself. Um, in the meantime, I think I wrote I think I wrote two books in the last five years. Um, but again, those were just, you know, me on my own time, uh, not doing any research or anything like that. And then, you know, work and family gets in the way. It's a pretty huge undertaking uh, to do a book. And I was very happy with my jobs I had and everything like that. I always knew I wanted to do another one, but I don't know, maybe my ambition took a hit or something like that. It's, it's sort of inexplicable. It's crazy for me that seven years have passed <laughs> or six years or whatever it is. Uh, it, time moves quickly, I think. Well, what is your process like for, for writing this one versus Slaying the Tiger? I mean, you mentioned the 35 weeks of travel in 2014 and obviously the the Ryder Cup is a three-day event uh so how does how do the differences between those two subjects change the writing process well I you know I think um in in 2014 when I traveled with the tour I was very new at it and felt like look if I'm going to write a book about this and it's going to sound like it you know it's written by somebody who knows what they're talking about I really really have to immerse myself and then there was the whole concept of, you know, trying to land interviews with golfers, which is, depending on how good the golfer was, could be very, very difficult and could take a year of coaxing and wheedling agents and things like that. And, you know, it was probably, probably took me two weeks to get the courage up even to talk to anybody. Um, and, you know, which is kind of funny now, because I'll talk to anybody, but at the time you're coming in going, I'm just supposed to approach these guys. It's supposed to be cold. And so it was a really long process of getting to know people, securing interviews and becoming familiar enough with the golf world that I felt like I could write a book from a place of whatever authority, you know, I had at the time. So now it's a little different because now I'm, I've been around the golf world for a number of years. I, I know things a little bit better. Uh, and with the Ryder cup, you know, it also makes it easier because a lot of the people I'm interviewing are older uh, you know, guys like, you know, Paul McGinley or Tony Jacklin, former captains or, or current captains like Stricker and Patrick Harrington, who, you know, in my opinion, maybe it's a function of age, maybe it's a function of different generations, but are easier to talk to, um, a little bit uh, more interesting in certain ways. And just there's there's just this historical aspect to the book that makes it for me a little bit more um, the, the work process is very different where I'm reading old sources or talking to former players who are way more eager to talk to me than, I don't know, Rory McIlroy would be, for instance. So that's that's different in that sense. And I still do have to talk to players, but it's a team event. So it's it's easier to do that in some ways. And it's easier to write without going, oh, crap, I don't have an interview with, uh, you know, Ricky Fowler. How am I going to how am I going to write the Ricky Fowler chapter? It's, it's not quite like that. You know, one of the things I love about slaying the tiger is that it's such a rare example of a really unvarnished look at the PGA tour. I mean, the, the tour goes to so much trouble to keep media coverage of their players at arm's length uh, and to, you know, maintain these, uh, these sort of characters that they've invented for these players to play. And that the slaying the tiger did such a great job of getting past that and showing on a really basic level, just who these people are as human beings. And I, I wonder, did, did publishing that book burn any bridges for you? I mean, is there anybody who just will not return your call at this point? You know, if, if it did burn any bridges, I haven't noticed them. Um, the tour, the funny thing is the tour was very helpful early on in, in slaying the tiger and 
granting me access for a year on the tour. I, you know, I think they were excited. I maybe excited is overstating it, but they certainly, you know, were helpful in writing the book. They weren't like some obstacle that wanted to impede me. And if they wanted to impede me, they could have very easily. Uh, if, the, if the tour just said, no, you can't have credentials, that would have, you know, killed the book immediately. Um, since then, you know, a lot of people always ask me, you know, oh, the players, will the players not talk to you or anything like that? I think... I don't know how many of the players have read the book or are even familiar with it. I, uh, my, the story I always tell is that's really funny to me is that there were a number of um, chapters that went up as excerpts online. And, um, you know, one thing I wrote about in the book is the whole episode where Webb Simpson kind of texted his way onto the Ryder cup team with Tom Watson. And, you know, this obviously didn't go well. Webb Simpson had a terrible Ryder cup. Watson had a terrible captaincy. And that was sort of crowning example of, you know, what they had done wrong. Like one of the things that, really an example of poor leadership and a questionable call on the part of the player to do it. So somebody, you know, came back to me once after the book was published and said, you know, Webb Simpson had a, had a negative comment about slaying the tiger. And I was thinking, yeah, of course he did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as I wrote, I wrote about, I kind of roasted him in the book. And so I, I went and like found out what he had said. And it was really funny because it was an SB nation excerpt uh, about Bubba Watson that he was commenting on. And, and the, the oh. thing I'd read about Bubba, you know, I went into these subtleties of what Bubba is like, and some of it's very negative. And so Webb said, you know, had something kind of to say about that saying he doesn't really understand him or whatever. And he didn't like it. I just thought to myself, well, wait till he reads the rest of the book. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, if you, if you don't like it now, Webb, <laughs> wait till you get to the last chapter. <laughs> Uh, but the funny thing is like, I don't, I'm sure he never read the rest of the book. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the golfers, I don't think these guys are huge readers or anything like that. And maybe they'll read something online here and there, but I haven't, you know, I just haven't come across a ton of reactions, uh, from players, the reactions, in the media and everywhere else were insane, uh, and continue to be sometimes. Um, and you know, I'm always gratified when people mention the book, the rare times it happens here, you know, six, five years later, but in terms of the players, I mean, even Patrick Reed, who for sure read it and who knows it, he doesn't refuse to answer my questions at a press conference or anything like that. Oh, wow. Well, good for him. Um, he might not know who I am. That's the thing. He might go, <laughs> I know Shane Ryan's bad, but I, I can't, I don't know which one is Shane Ryan. <laughs> uh, I'm really interested in this uh, podcast that you've started doing in the, in the lead up to the Ryder Cup. Uh, you're working on a, a periodic podcast that looks back at uh, at old Ryder Cups and kind of tells the story of of those years uh, doing this in the, the lead up to the 2021 Ryder Cup. And I guess incidentally, uh, probably de facto operates as uh, publicity for the book you're working on now. How did you land on that idea? You know, the funny thing about that idea is it, I just started, you know, I've been driving a lot more because I'm going to a few events. and I, I only listen to podcasts usually when I drive and I love podcasts, but I'm not one of those people who can listen and, and work at the same time. But I, I started listening to this podcast called Hardcore History uh, with Dan Carlin, which is I just love hardcore history. it's so good. It's, it's just so good. And it's he's a wonderful researcher and a wonderful writer, but also his presentation and the way he's he kind of functions as a storyteller, it just kind of blew my mind. And it was like, if you had told me like, okay, you're going to, your job is to listen to a 16 hour podcast about World War One. It kind of sounds like, well, I'd, I'd rather jump in a, off a bridge. You know what I mean? Like I, I love <laughs> history, but at the same time, I don't want to listen to someone talk to me about it for 16 hours. And it, but with him, with him, it's perfect. It just, it works really well. And he's, he's just, I, I'm so fascinated with his method, but anyway, long story short, I was like, I wonder if this could be done a similar kind of thing with, with the Ryder cup where each episode it really goes in depth and, and tries to tell the story in a really compelling way about one year of the Ryder Cup. And so I thought, well, the one I know the most about is 2014 because I was there and I, you know, I was writing a book about it. And so I have all these different elements and I think it's really interesting, even though it was a European blowout because of various things that happened, the Tom Watson stuff. And so I was like, let me try to write uh, a podcast script and then deliver it. And for me, it was one of those things where I don't know, it's just kind of weird to say, but whether I ever did a second one was based going to be based solely on the reaction of, of people listening. And I was very prepared for it to be very boring because I'm not Dan Carlin or anything like that. But it was, yeah, I was like, if people don't respond to this or they say like, okay, I listened for 10 minutes and this was like, there's no way I'm going through 90 minutes of this stuff because that's how long it was at the end, 90 minutes. I wouldn't have done a second one, but people really were positive. I mean, 
you've probably had this with things you've written, you know, where sometimes you, you write, you can write a million things and then one thing just hits in a way and you notice it immediately. And it kind of like, you, you may not even have expected it, but people respond in this really cool way. And you go, man, I've, I've thrown like, you know, 50 darts this past two months. And there's ones that I thought would be huge and weren't. And all of a sudden this one happens and people seem to love it. And you're, it's, it's so cool and gratifying. So you know, these are incredibly long scripts. I just released the second episode this week, six weeks after the first one. So you can see it's not, and this one, the first one was 90 minutes. And I was like, I can't go that long again. I can't, I can't, you know, even though people really liked it, I've got to try to make these a little shorter. This one is uh, 104 minutes. So, <laughs> so I, I actually went longer with it. And it's on 1983, which is kind of one of my favorite historical moments, which is when Tony Jacklin takes over the European Ryder Cup team and, you know, it, it, over the course of five years, transforms it from this America-dominated, boring, boring event that it's amazing it even survived into something that we know today where the Europeans are so successful. And the story of how he did that with Sevi Ballesteros, and they're both such fascinating characters, it really got lost in it. And so that came out Tuesday. And yeah, again, people people seem to be enjoying it. So yeah, it, it maybe it will function a little bit as publicity. Um, I don't know. It's it's, it's it's sort of why I did it. Honestly, the reason I did it more was because it forces me to, to do a lot of research and to write it, you know, and I think that's going to be really useful for the book when I do it. Um, and then I just like doing it. And I mean, funny thing is if you listen to it and listen to hardcore history, I'm basically just copying Dan Carlin's intonation, even down to like the <laughs> mannerisms of Dan Carlin, just shamelessly copying what he does. And I was thinking about it today and I'm like, you know, is that kind of pathetic or, or like pitiful that, like, don't you have your own voice? Why are you just doing what Dan Carlin is? And I was like, you know what? After Bob Dylan became super successful, there were a million musicians who just sounded exactly like Bob Dylan. And it, it ran the spectrum from, you know, your most pathetic, like open mic guy with no talent to like Tom Petty. And, and Tom Petty is really good, but he also copied Bob Dylan's intonation. So I'm not saying I'm like the Tom Petty to Dan Carlin's Bob Dylan, but I am saying that it doesn't have to be, you know, like a, a terrible thing. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the huge differences, obviously, between uh, writing a book about the Ryder Cup and a, and a season on the PGA Tour is just the, the length of time for those events. You know, you're writing about Roy McIlroy and Patrick Reed in 2014. You might have had all year to kind of watch and draw conclusions about them. Uh, but at the Ryder Cup, it's three days. And when it's over, it's over. Uh, how does that affect the way that you'll be reporting for the book? Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those funny things, because, you know, in theory, I could write a bunch of this book before the Ryder Cup, and then, you know, write the rest after we know what happened in the Ryder Cup. But what happens in the Ryder Cup is going to inform the whole beginning of the book, too, because I can't write a whole book being like, you know, here's why the American system fails. And here's what they did wrong in the lead up to to Whistling Straits or the opposite. Like, here's, you know, here's everything Steve Stricker did right. He's one of the brilliant American captains. He's going to be part of the thing that turns us around. Here's everything brilliant he did leading up to Sling Straits. And then the opposite happens, <laughs> you know, because then your whole, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 words that you've written before are garbage. <laughs> you can't just go into the last chapter and go, hey, remember everything I just wrote that you've read for the last, you know, five hours? Uh, actually, <laughs> the thing that happened when they actually played golf is completely the opposite. Sorry. <laughs> um, so you can't really... I can't really get too much of a head start um, before the actual Ryder Cup happens. Um, so, you know, it's, it, look, the, the truth is it's going to be, um, my, the, I think the manuscript is due October 31st, which gives me about a month and a few days uh, after oh the Ryder Cup to write the whole book. Yeah. But, you know, I, the thing is, like, I've always written very fast and I, I'm going to have, I've been doing interviews and research and everything for two years. So all that stuff is at my fingertips and it, it it's going to be daunting. I, you know, I won't lie. It may be that I turn it in two weeks later than it's due. I hope not, but that could be the case. And it's not that big a deal if it is the case, but it's, uh, it's going to be there for me, but it is the kind of thing I do have to wait. I do have to wait and see what happens in whistling straights. There's, there's just no way around it. I was writing uh, a story last night for that'll be in the golfer's journal uh, next year. And I really, at the end of the, I guess it was about 10 o'clock at night, I, I really felt like I'd broken my ass and it's like, all right, this is, this is good. Whatever, whatever number you're at right now, you've really put in some great work. 
And I'd ran a quick word count right before I finished. I'd written like 800 words. And I really felt like I'd broken my ass. The, the idea of having to turn around a draft of a manuscript in a month. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to sleep. You'll have to work so, 24 hours a day. Let me, let me just give you a little contact. You're probably right. Uh, and I'm, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, don't, don't understand how long the journey is when you start it. Cause you'll never start it. So I try not <laughs> to think about it, but to, to give you a little bit of context about how I work, the one thing I can do is write really, really fast I mean, and like at a decent quality fast. So before, before we recorded, I was like, you know, I'd really like to, to write a post for digest. I write for the loop sometimes for digest, which is, um, they're, they're non-golf vertical. So we do stories about other things. And my editor gave me this idea of writing um, about the Fiji gold medal team. There was this cool video where they're all singing the national anthem. Just one of those quick internet one-offs, you know, where it's like, well, look how cool this is type thing. So I, I was like, yeah, I can do this. And so I think just in like 40 minutes before we talked, I wrote 500 words on this. And I think they're, they're decent words. And so like, it's, that, that's just one of those funny things. It's like, I, I definitely don't consider myself the greatest writer or like, or, or you know, the most thorough or whatever, but I, I think I'm definitely the fastest <laughs> of people I know. I can, I can write really quickly. And, and that's one thing that um, really helps when you're writing a book for sure. If you, you know, again, if you don't have 10 years to write it. Well, that's episode five of the line four podcast. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Spotify or wherever you download your podcasts. And if you didn't enjoy it, then please just keep it to yourself. Thank you. And, and hey, for real, seriously, one more time, please get vaccinated. I'm not telling you. I'm not nagging you. I'm asking you. Please get vaccinated. Our friends and our families are counting on all of us right now. We all need to do everything that we can to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And getting vaccinated is the best way to do it. Please get vaccinated. This has been the Line 4 Podcast. I'm Will Bardwell, signing off.